we see that 55% of all people sitting in each train every day of everywhere in the Netherlands arrive or depart by bike on their journey. And this is more than 10% of the total travel demand in the Netherlands. That's one thing we did in Los Angeles that I think we really got right was we allowed bicycles on our trains really from the beginning. And that's something that a lot of other metro areas are slowly catching on to in the United States that was previously prohibited. Welcome to Bike Talk. Today, we have two amazing people in the world of bikes. We have Roland Kaher, who is known as the bike train guru. And he was a researcher at the University of Amsterdam on the bike train connection. And now you're a cycling transit and urban planner at Studio Berag Bar in Rotterdam. And we also have Brett Atencio Thomas, who's a principal transportation planner at LA County Metro, but he's here in his personal capacity as a SoCal bike expert. Welcome, you guys, to Bike Talk. Thanks so much, Lindsay. So I thought I would start with asking, Roland, you've done all this research into the bike transit connection, bike-oriented development, BOD. I love that. And almost going back to the 1930 era of bikes and streetcars. So tell us about the bike transit connection. Yeah, so it's a big pleasure to be asked to execute a national research program some seven, eight years ago at the University of Amsterdam. I have been a transport planner for some 10, 15 years before. And then I was asked, can you draft a research agenda? What cycling and transit have to do with each other? And then quite quickly, I arrived that often in transport, we look at trips in transport planning and transport consultancy. But if you look at the individual level, you see very different patterns. So on a trip level, you might think bike and transit that they compete with each other for short trips. But if you look on an individual level, you see people, who, at least in the Netherlands, but increasingly in many urban areas in the world, that people who cycle a lot also use transit a lot and mostly trains and long distance public transport, but also vice versa. People use trains and express buses a lot. They also cycle at least more than average. And the third connection is actually the urban dimension, that people who live in urban centers or frequently travel towards urban center, they use public transport more often because that's gearing towards those destinations and or they use cycling more often. So on an individual level, these modes go very well together. And the final step then actually is researching, can you also use bikes if you use them more regularly or at least more than average in an area? And you also use cycling to reach public transport stops because that greatly increases the number of stops you have accessible. And there is a lot of interesting phenomena. And I hope to talk with you a bit more about that. Yeah. So what I'm understanding is that the bike transit connection is far more powerful than one or the other. And actually people, they like access to bikes in transit better than they like a car. Is that right? Well, of course, public transport is awesome. There's only one thing, reaching a station, providing that there is a decent service. How do you get to the station? Or if you're at the station, how do you get to your true destination? And biking is a bit an opposite problem. It's awesome as long as your journey is not longer than, say, five kilometers, because then it gets very tedious to cycle, at least on a daily routine where you need to go somewhere else. But if you put them together, this works very well, because then suddenly the catchment area of all your stations is much increased. This is excellent for a transit operator because then he can provide less stations 
stations. So he needs to have less stations with infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly you get more efficient services because you can concentrate your services on a limited number of stations. So you have more express services and you have less routing problems. So this is an excellent combination if you can increase the catchment area of your stations. And especially in the Netherlands, where some 15% of all trips are made by trains and long distance public transport, we see that 55% of all people sitting in each train every day of everywhere in the Netherlands arrive or depart by bike on their journey. And this is more than 10% of the total travel demand in the Netherlands. Cycling alone is 30% of all trips in the Netherlands. Wow. So, Brett, we're in LA. How could this translate to LA? I think Roland brings up a lot of really good points. Some of the first things to consider really is that bicycling and transit are both a substitute for each other as well as a complement. So, Roland brings up a lot of good points, right? So, if you're like within a five kilometer or for us, maybe two, two and a half mile radius, that's a five, six minute bike ride. That's an easy way to substitute for transit, right? So instead of waiting maybe a five or six minute headway for a bus or a train, you might just take that trip on the bike. In that case, it's a substitute. Whereas it's a compliment when you have those longer distance trips, right? So you might say, hey, here I am 15 miles from my destination. And kind of a joke for Roland in Los Angeles, we often say minutes instead of miles, right? Because of our traffic here, our our (laughs) orange. If you're 15 miles from your destination, say if you're here in Los Angeles and you're in the valley, And you want to be able to take your bike on a train or have a bike available at the other end if you're coming to, say, downtown and want to go to the Arts District. So our train might not necessarily go all the way from the Valley into the Arts District. It might only go into the Financial District or the historic core parts of downtown. But when you get to downtown, you could easily get off and bike that last two or three miles to get to the Arts District. In that sense, it's a complement to transit. So again, biking is both a substitute and a complement of transit. On the complement side... It's a question of where do you store your bike at a station? Do you have storage capacity at a station? Is there a bike available? And can you get a bike on transit? Of course, for buses in California, we recently had new legislation passed that we can have three bikes on the front of our buses. So that's not very helpful, especially if we're trying to get to numbers like Amsterdam, where I think, Roland, you said about 55% of the folks on the transit vehicles arrive or depart by bicycle. But on trains, having that capacity to bring bikes on board trains is hugely important. That's one thing we did in Los Angeles that I think we really got right was we allowed bicycles on our trains really from the beginning. And that's something that a lot of other metro areas are slowly catching on to in the United States that was previously prohibited. But really having, again, that bicycle parking, that bicycle storage capacity and the ability to bring bikes to allow for that substitution and complement behavior between bikes and transit. Wow. So what level of safety do you have to see in your bike lanes to really get people to embrace this complementary bike transit connection? How I often approach cycling and transit is that they offer synergy for each other. So that means if you have a proper transit system, it has a positive effect on cycling levels locally and vice versa. If you invest in cycling, it means you will have higher transit usage because people base more of their trips by cycling. So then they also seek something for the long distance and vice versa. And also they can combine both modes. But of course, this is hampered by any factor that prevails. The synergy can only provide synergy to a base level that is locally accommodated. This can be in carrying capacity of bikes in trains, parking capacity, number of shared bikes available in an area, but also mostly by cycling culture and a safe infrastructure that is available 
how do you come to a higher number of trips, either by transit or by cycling or by both modes combined from the current level? And then anything that brings it to a higher level helps in achieving and justifying more investments in safer bike streets. It also works the other way around. Investing in better bike street can provide an opportunity for more people to travel towards railway stations and then feed transit from an existing timetable. What's so interesting is that LA has fabulous metro. I think we have great trains. So is there a tipping point? Is there a way for us to think about this where we could really get to Dutch levels? I think there's a couple things to look at. So first, going back to Roland's statement on catchment area. We have numbers from Metro's first last mile plan and from our long range transportation plan that we know our existing Metro system in Los Angeles County, you know, we have 10 million residents here, of course, 80% of our residents, so 8 million people in Los Angeles County live within three miles of a high quality transit station. Really what we're saying by high quality transit stations, generally that's either light rail or heavy rail station, maybe some of our BRT stations as well. But again, 80% of our county's residents live within three miles of a station. But three miles in distance on completely separated, safe infrastructure is completely different than three miles on a, from a station on a busy six-lane highway-type boulevard. And really, that's where it falls into, I think. I'm going to assume that most of the listeners to your show are pretty familiar with bicycling generally. But for anyone out there listening that might not be, let's look at what type of classes there are for bike lanes. So class one is a completely separated path, basically a bicycle path off street, something like Bayona Creek or the Los Angeles River path. A class two is an on-street bicycle lane. A class three is what we call a sharrow. And then a class four, a newer classification is an on-street separated lane. So maybe like a cycle track, such as you what you'd find on 7th Street in downtown LA or Spring Street in downtown LA. Really, if we're looking for bicycling, we need to automatically take the Sharrow out of the equation. Unless it's on a street with traffic speeds of less than 15 miles an hour or ADTs of less than 5,000, um, average daily traffic volume of less than 5,000, really a Sharrow is no longer an option for almost anyone to ride a bicycle. Unless you are a very seasoned bike rider that's taking the lanes, this sort of rider, a Sharrow is completely out. Now we look at class two, which is this on-street lane, basically out for most people as well. You know, there's sort of the adage of this eight to 80 idea. And obviously an eight-year-old is probably not going to be riding a bicycle on a, throughout a city on their own. And an 80-year-old might not be doing that as well. But the idea that the infrastructure needs to be available and usable by those that are from the ages of eight to 80 to actually be usable infrastructure. So if we're looking at having that catchment area where 80% of our residents live within three miles of a high quality transit station, we as a region should be focusing on building that eight to 80 separated infrastructure to connect people to the train system and to the bus system. Oh my God, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> this is one of my biggest issues because I'm a mom and I'm a scaredy cat and I'm not even that much of a scaredy cat, but I get terrified. I biked for a few times in LA and I just couldn't do it. But the minute what you say, like a class one or a class four, I'll go, I give up my car. So it's really thrilling to hear you say that. I guess my question would to both of you, is there a tipping point? Is there a saturation level where you start to see interest grow and then it kind of goes Dutch. <laughs> I think the tipping point even we haven't reached in the Netherlands yet. In the Netherlands, we have seen for the last 10, 15 years that the biggest growth in both transit usage and in cycling usage is exactly in the cities where it was already much above average. And 10 years ago, we couldn't imagine it would be as high as now. 
but I think it will continue in the same way because the urban centers here are getting ever more dense cycling infrastructure, but also the train services are ever getting more frequent. We've got 15 trains per hour now throughout the day between Amsterdam and Rotterdam, which is some 60 kilometers apart via three different routes. So literally every four minutes a train is leaving for the 60 kilometer stretch. And many other cities in the Netherlands are served on a 10 minute basis from six o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And a couple of years ago, it was four intercities per hour. And this goes on and on and on, especially for those centers. So especially in the areas where the usage already highs, we still see the biggest growth. And I think that comes back to maybe not what's the tipping point, but what is the good areas where you can make synergy from your investments in cycling, in transit, or in urban densification, that you align these agendas with each other. So if you have an agenda for some area to open up a new station or open an express line that serves a couple of stations or have a housing project where some area is being densified or has another influx, that you try to align that in the same area you invest in cycling. Or if you have a very good cycling network where you open this express service, you also have a stop somewhere near this area. So you get a bit of some areas in your city or region where all things point in the same direction. You have good cycling facilities or you try to improve them at the same speed how you deliver or improve transit options and try to make density which serves both as an origin and a destination for people to travel to and try to align these agenda where you have some flexibility over transit-oriented development, where you look in the one square kilometer around the station, that you can tie this up to two, three, maybe even four miles. In one area, you can get all three elements of the basket in an upward direction, then you see that they will start to reinforce each other and they feed each other. The transit system will be filled by the people who live in increased densities. The increased densities will give a negative push to car because space gets more scarce. So one way or the other, you will get higher parking fees or that cars aren't as speedy. And at the same time, the cycling infrastructure will be filled with cyclists because that's the most comfortable way to to get around. So try to get them in the same area. Don't try to do the whole city in one go. That has never been accomplished and will never be accomplished. But be specific in the target areas where you try to deliver all three elements at some comparable level. So it's a virtuous cycle and it's a virtuous cycle around safe bike lanes, good transit and infill housing density. And then they reinforce each other. So Brett, in downtown LA, great bike lanes, right? Becoming better, probably every year they're getting better and better. I think a couple of things to point back to, right, is really, I think Roland hit that nail on the head is the cost. The cost of automobile ownership in Los Angeles is incredibly cheap. If you can go to downtown LA and you can park your vehicle for $3 at an all-day lot, probably <laughs> do that, right? I mean, unless you are some sort of bicycle enthusiast, you're really going to go for the path of least resistance. If the least resistance is on automobile use and automobile ownership, that really changes the whole scenario. So increasing things like parking costs, like Roland said, increasing automobile use, increasing the gas tax, all of these things are going to have positive impacts at a certain point on bicycle usage. If we want to increase bicycle usage in Los Angeles County or even any city in the United States, we really have to understand that there's only a hundred pieces of pie, right? It's going to come from somewhere. Is it going to be, like we said earlier, is it going to be a substitute for transit use? Is it going to be a substitute for walking? Or is it going to be a substitute for automobile use? 
And really, if we wanted to substitute automobile use, which is probably the most green and the most equitable way to do it, we really got to look at that cost of auto use and really start to try to figure out what that issue is. I think as a region, we're thinking that way. I think we're looking at things like tolling our highways, creating cordon zones or cordon pricing. And then obviously parking, it's something that's slowly decreasing supply, which will obviously change the demand of it and it will increase the pricing over time. But as we continue to build housing in Los Angeles with large amounts of parking, if we're building 300 units with 350 parking spaces, we could continue to see parking continue to be cheap in Los Angeles and therefore automobile use continue to be cheap. One thing I think it's important to point out Los Angeles has been at about 1.2% mode share, according to the American Community Survey. That's commute to work. About 1.2% of Los Angeles residents commute to work via bicycle. That was a huge jump after the push of bicycle infrastructure we built in the 2000s at that time with Antonio Viragosa at the helm as mayor. That 1.2% has stayed about steady for about 10 years. So no matter what infrastructure we've been building, we have not seen an increase in our mode share. You go to somewhere like Portland, which is sort of the American Amsterdam, and embarrassingly enough to, to tell Roland, they're at about 6 to 8% mode share in Portland. And again, they've been stuck at that mode share for about 10, 15 years. You've seen cities like New York City increase their mode share from around 1.2% to about 6 or 8%. So they took New York from basically Los Angeles to Portland levels of bike usage within about two, three years. And that, of course, happened with major major pushes against automobiles, closing streets, increasing the cost of parking, increasing tolls into the city of New York over the bridges, things of that sort. And that had a large impact and doing that at the same time as building infrastructure had a large impact. And then lastly, couldn't agree more with Roland on focusing on certain areas. Like you said, downtown LA. Another area we have is Santa Monica. Both of those areas are seeing pretty decent increases in bike usage over time. And I think growing that usage from those centers and connecting those centers is huge. But how do we do that in an equitable fashion, I think is something huge here. And realizing that Los Angeles isn't as big as people think it is. The distance between the west side of Los Angeles, Santa Monica, where there's high bike usage, and downtown Los Angeles is about the same distance as uptown New York or the northern part of Manhattan to the southern part of Manhattan and the financial district. It's not that big of an area. Wow, that's so interesting. Can I just throw an idea out there? I grew up in New York and I biked there a lot and I've seen the difference, okay? Is that six to 8% is really interesting. And it's interesting that it doesn't change. I wonder if it's actually correlated with the level of safety and that our 1% reflects the level of safety and the percent of people who are willing to risk that. And the six to 8% reflects the level of people willing to risk that level of safety. It's not safe in New York. I'll be honest. I did it. I was scared, you know, a good 10% of the time. And then I just stopped doing it. And they have e-boost bikes. They're great. The city bikes are everywhere, but you are interacting with the car too much. And it's terrifying. I think Ninth Avenue in New York had a huge impact on New York City, creating that connection from top of Manhattan down to the bottom of Manhattan. And then also creating the connections like over the Brooklyn Bridge into Brooklyn, having those long distance completely separate. We could call Ninth Avenue a cycle four. It's a cycle track. Um, so it is separated infrastructure. It's not quite eight to 80, but it's pretty close. And having those big, long distance connections and creating those connections, I think, has leaps and bounds. And there's a gorgeous lane up the West Side Highway now. I rode it from 10th Street to my sister's house at 113th Street. But here's the thing. The minute I interacted with the car, I was out. I love bike. I think they're amazing. But do you see what I'm saying? I'm not in that six to 8%. That's separate infrastructure. Yeah. If we had funding 
to build a completely separated path from Santa Monica to downtown Los Angeles and connect that with Biona, connect that with the Los Angeles River, you would see bicycling increase in Los Angeles handedly, just like it did in New York. But you're right. Once you get off those paths and you're back on those roads that are dominated by cars and speeds higher than 15 miles an hour, then yeah, your bike mode share is going to go down significantly. When I started my studies in 1994, and then I had to choose a city in the Netherlands where I wanted to study, and I grew up next to Amsterdam, but I didn't choose Amsterdam because Amsterdam was the city in the Netherlands known for its lowest ratio of cycling in the Netherlands because it was simply the dangerous place to cycle. This was just some 25 years ago. You know it's very different now, and Amsterdam now has the highest cycling. But even I, and I'm not that old yet, (laughs) I did not go study in Amsterdam because cycling was very low there and very dangerous. And I think one of the main things which has changed this is lowering the speed of the automobile, and that gradually, year by year, more people took up cycling. And then if this continues for some years, yeah, suddenly there's still not a lot of dedicated cycle infrastructure in Amsterdam. It's mostly that they coexist with cars where the cars have more or less evaporated and it's a network of more or less residential streets and streets that are more or less becoming cycling streets. And only the barriers where there's some crossing of railways, highways, those links are very important. And that could be a bridge in New York or some of these links that are vital links that you have to cross. They need dedicated cycle infrastructure because they are the critical points. Can be dangerous streets, can be bridges and underpasses. And from there, I think you can build your network even with residential streets providing that speed of cars is reduced there. It'd be interesting to see if lowering the speed of the cars was one of the biggest correlations with the growth in cycling. I'm obsessed with safety and I really, I just love the way- The ride you you are. (laughs) I know, because I think it all comes down to speed. I think if the cars were going under 20 miles an hour, and we know that the minute you go over 20 miles an hour, the death rates go up exponentially, not linear. And I have kids and I've gone through the schools in LA and they're tragedies. And four out of the five of the tragedies in our lives were cars and it was speed. And so it really hits home when those things happen. But it's just interesting. I wonder if anyone's ever looked at that. Is that the six to eight mode share that you get over it through the speed? Is it a combination of infrastructure, fully connected networks? I'm just curious. Do you see what I'm saying? It is at least what we're seeing now in Europe. That's uh, also outside of the Netherlands, where we started 15, 20 years ago with a limit of 30 kilometers per hour. So 20 miles per hour, basically in any built-up city. And now we're getting the next phase that's also the remaining 50 kilometers. So 30 miles per hour roads are downgraded. But many cities from Barcelona, Vienna, Brussels, Paris, London, they see a new wave partly due to corona of much lower speeds. And this is very important in cycling levels to grow in this area. And very interestingly, again, it's the big urban centers. It's kind of also happening in the smaller urban centers. But here you really see that people want uh, these safer streets because they're just demanded from their mayors and the elect governments. And they have used, for example, corona to push it through. And of course, there is opposition. But what counts in the end is that's, that's more people supporting this and not defending the right of cars to go faster. Some do, but not enough do. Uh, So we see a consistent pattern in Europe of lowering speed, especially in the urban centers. And I think this is a good opportunity for cycling. 
right? And I think there is a correlation between safety and demand and supply for parking and making automobile use more expensive. There's really a correlation between that cost and between that safety. You know, in the United States, we have that 85th percentile rule. So really, that's the way speed limits are set on our streets. 85% of the people go a certain speed limit, that that's what the speed limit's going to be set at. So when you see roads in cities in the United States, including Los Angeles County, having speed limit increases, it's because of that 85th percentile rule, right? So if you have a roadway that's posted at 20 miles an hour, like you said, Lindsay, that's right. 2025 is really right in that area where fatalities start to take off exponentially. You have a road that has a speed limit posted at 25 miles an hour. They do a traffic study on it. They find that 85% of people on that roadway are driving at 35 miles an hour. Then under our current way of setting speed limits in the United States, we raise that speed limit to 35 miles an hour. And that's really because people are driving at that speed limit, right? They're the ones that are demanding it. They're sort of, you know, we have that saying of vote with your feet or vote with your wallet. They're voting with their gas pedal. So they're voting for them with their gas pedal in a sense. And that's what's causing these higher speed limits on our streets and our roadways. And that's because of the way we set speed limits. And that's really also, again, because we have a glut of parking in Los Angeles. We have so much parking in Los Angeles. We also have a very low cost of automobile ownership compared to other large cities in the United States. And you combine those two things, people are going to take the path of least resistance. They're going to drive because it's the easiest thing to do. And when they drive, they're going to demand higher speed limits. Whereas a lot easier to ride a bicycle, or if it was a lot easier to take transit, they would demand easier use of bicycle, easier use of transit via saying, hey, we want separated infrastructure. So really, it's that cost mechanism that correlates back into that safety mechanism. But it's also reversing the question because it's a known fact that if you ask people if they want lower speeds, they say no. But if you ask people what is the biggest problem in your own street where you're living or where you frequently reside, they say too high speeds. It's dangerous. <laughs> and that's very <laughs> consistent. I've seen all kinds of research where this kind of dichotomy. So it's also reverting this question. We're doing what people want for their own streets. But that also means... That in other streets, especially in streets where there's a lot of people, we are going to lower speeds. And I think it's getting more and more consistent that mayors who do so get rewarded because actually that is what people appreciate a lot. And also, I think we talked about how to raise the level of ridership in transit and in cycling. I think lowering the speed of cars, the very good effective thing of that it doesn't cost a lot of money. Of course, you need mm. to change the road layout in the long term, but in itself, it doesn't cost money. And where that's often an argument, what shall we do? Oh, that's too costly. That's too much. Lowering the speed is both very effective and very cheap. So I think it's very good for everyone trying to fight for more cycling and transit. The cyclist unions and the transit operators unite in supporting this demand for lower speed with barrows and neighborhoods who have the same vision of their own surrounding. I couldn't agree more. Are you seeing that if you lower the speed limit, is there a certain level that you lower it to that you start to see bike ridership go up? Well, this is what we've seen in the Netherlands and what we've seen outside of the Netherlands. Sometimes this is being done for safer conditions in response to traffic mortality. Actually, this is what changed in Amsterdam called Stop Child Murder, Stop the Kindermord, which was one of the defining moments for Amsterdam, where a big group of local residents protested against car speed because too many children were dying in the streets. So this was a turning point that precisely this was attacked. And when that gradually was accommodated, that car speed did go down, then Amsterdam became a cycling city. And we're seeing this in other cities now as well. 
where traffic calming is introduced, cycling is getting a boost. And after it's getting a boost, facilities are improved to accommodate these boosts. And then you see synergies with transit, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. So is I it, think it's it, an important starting point. Is it a linear relationship? As you drop the speed limit, you see more biking, or is it you have to get it to a certain point and then you see biking? I have done academic research, but not on this topic. So this is more anecdotal. We've had a couple of waves in the Netherlands before you could drive 80 on country roads. This has lowered to 60 kilometers per hour throughout the country. And the normal speed was 50 kilometers per hour in cities, 30 miles per hour. And that's now down to 20 miles per hour. And actually, there's already initiatives to lower it further in the residential hoops that it should go more like 15 kilometers per hour. So that's nine miles per hour. So we've seen these waves and they're only going lower. Wow. Brett, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing. So I think a couple of things to look at and to consider is the variances between automobile ownership and what automobile ownership means in places like Northwestern Europe, places like Amsterdam the Netherlands, places like the United States. So when you look at Amsterdam, when you look at the Netherlands, I think the terminology they use, and stop me if I overspeak this, Roland, is this idea of the polder model. This idea that in the late 1800s, 1700s, in Amsterdam and the Netherlands, they realized our population is growing. The country has a lot of power. Our population is growing. We have limited land. We need to not only reclaim land and lower slung bays and things of this sort, but we also need to protect ourselves against storms and flooding as our population grows. So despite political differences, despite any sort of differences in opinion, everyone in the Netherlands got together and built polders to protect the country, to make sure the country had enough land to be a successful country. In the same way, and this is what they teach for bicycling in the Netherlands, is that in the 1960s, 1950s, the Netherlands was awash in cars, just like the United States was. And, and as Roland mentioned, it had high speed limits, and it was very much following the American model of automobile ownership. And the people of the Netherlands, despite political differences, despite differences in opinions or, or political leanings, all got together and said, hey, we need to decrease automobile use here. We need to decrease automobile ownership here. We need to decrease speed limits. And that, in turn, sort of led to an increase in bicycling, which was the next best option. Transit, although it's great, and although, you know, I should mention I haven't owned a car in 11 years. I personally don't own a vehicle. Transit does not give you the same freedom as a bicycle. A bicycle gives you freedom on par or similar to an automobile. It lets you go wherever you want to go on your schedule, on your time. So it's a great substitute for an automobile. In the United States, it's the opposite of the Polder model. We don't have the Polder model here. We have that sort of rugged Jeffersonian style of individualism, that thinking that I want to have my big plot of land and I want to have my space. And a lot of that goes along with the automobile. The automobile to most Americans really represents freedom. To them, it represents, I can go wherever I want, whenever I want. I don't have to wait for anyone or ask for anyone. So that's the differences in political ideologies. So I think that's a big thing to take into account when you're looking at the United States is slowly changing that concept that the automobile represents freedom. And maybe as Roland said, sort of repurposing the statements of bicycling, creating bicycling as an idea of freedom, creating bicycling as an idea of you can go anywhere you want, whenever you want on your own time. I love yes, that. If I may add to this, very much agree on what you say, but I think also it has got a lot to do with scarcity of land. 
we just didn't have the option in the Netherlands. We were from history graced with a lot of mid-sized cities, so a polycentric urban pattern. And we just didn't have the land to expand with big suburbs because they would be at the next city and there was agriculture and or it was wet or whatever. So countries like Switzerland, there was scarcity of space which you could use for your urban centers. And this has created dense places where we tried to give space to the car but in the end, it didn't work out. The bicycle was essentially a necessity. Precisely. But I think that the lesson for this is, and this is the lesson we are also seeing now, is creating the problem for a car. By adding density to a place, you don't get into the pitfall of giving away all space to cars, either parked or motorways, because you just don't have this space. One of the defining things for Amsterdam was that it didn't have these wide alleys where motorization could have its free flows, like the big boulevards that they created for military parades in Paris or the bombed cities in Germany or Rotterdam even, where there was a lot of space and big motorways being constructed simply because place was there. And then the extremes are the Venices of the world, where you didn't have this space. Car motorization didn't took on or where it took on, somewhere it was stopped by the residents or by air pollution, traffic deaths, or just a lot of congestion. So it did, doesn't work out. And then you get excellent metro systems like we see in all the cities all over the world, but also cycling in more selected cities. And why I'm raising this is that in the Netherlands, we've seen the cities were emptying out to attractive places in the countryside where the cities were polluted and unsecure, etc. And somewhere this flipped, where the cities got cleaner, more quality was invested in public space, density was added, but also an economy that's more geared to niche functions for your education or your work. You want to be in a city where you can meet people, where you have to specialize shops, employers, etc. So our life is getting more geared to the city and we see those cities expanding again as a destination, but also in the number of people residing there, but it's taking place in the same square kilometers. So we're adding programmer to it. And that means something has to leave there and not year on year, but in the last 20 years, we've seen car is losing space in the cities. And I think this is the same phenomena. Adding scarcity of space means that the most space inefficient mode, which is the car, somehow will lose because it just will not work out for the individual who is dependent on it. And also not being necessity because of increased proximity, you can reach many places, but neither will it be accepted by your, maybe your existing neighbors, but all your new neighbors who are coming, they won't accept it because they are coming to live there for the attractive public space and car in the end doesn't work there. I agree. Cars just geometrically don't work the way we think they could work. Brett, let me ask you this. What would you like to see in LA? What are the changes you think should, could happen? What do you dream about to really create this bike transit connection? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great question. And all of the conversation here is leading back to exactly what Roland said. It's about making automobile ownership harder, more expensive, less attractive. That's really what changes things. I live in Koreatown. And as I mentioned, I haven't owned a car in 11 years. I became car-free in Orange County because it was easy for me when I was living in the Newport Costa Mesa area to use a bike to get around. Car ownership was expensive. I was in university. I said, you know what? I'm going to ditch the car. And I kept with that. Now, fast forward to where I live today in Koreatown in Los Angeles, owning an automobile in Koreatown is hard. It's expensive, right? You have to park it. If you don't have off-street parking, which usually is around two to $300 a month in a garage, 
if you don't have off-street parking, you're going to have to circle the block for an hour maybe to find a parking space. For anyone listening that lives in Koreatown that drives, they know that's not an exaggeration. That's really what it is. So because of that, you go to neighborhoods like Koreatown and you have very low automobile ownership. But what are we doing in Koreatown as a city is we're building new housing, lots of new housing in Koreatown. I think Koreatown is right now the fastest growing part of Los Angeles. And all of that new housing pretty much has parking. So we're getting rid of our old pre-war housing stock, replacing it with more modern buildings with parking. And that creates a juxtaposition where you have adding parking in an already urban environment and making it cheap to drive. That's the type of things that we in Los Angeles need to be changing. If I could answer the question of what is my fantasy for Los Angeles or what can I see Los Angeles doing better is really our housing policy, not creating parking when we build new housing. If we already have high quality transit in the community, we already have a tight grid system with smaller, less wide streets that are hard to drive fast on because they were built pre-war. We should be building housing in those areas without parking. We should be making it harder and harder and harder to drive an automobile. If we do that, we're going to see naturally, as Roland mentioned, we're going to naturally see bicycling become a more attractive option just as walking will be and just as transit will be. You look at places like Portland, it's no coincidence that Portland has an urban growth boundary. Portland doesn't allow suburban sprawl. They also happen to have a 6 to 8% bicycle mode share. Those things are definitely correlated and definitely, in my opinion, related. And when they build new housing in Portland, they really push against including parking as part of that. In Los Angeles County, we're starting to see that. But remember, it's not just about our housing policy. It's also about what developers are willing to build and what pencils for them. And oftentimes they're not going to be able to get a loan to build their new housing development without including parking in it. So these sorts of things, this housing policy, this banking policy, et cetera, really, really impact the way in which we get around Los Angeles by automobile. I love all this and I couldn't agree more. Let me ask you about congestion pricing. And I just learned about dynamic pricing. You guys may know this, but maybe the audience doesn't, is that it's like when you get an Uber and there's surge pricing. And so if there's a lot of traffic, the price of using the road goes way up and then it drops the minute there's no traffic. What are the hopes for either dynamic pricing or congestion pricing in LA? I think, again, it's the folks of Los Angeles in voting with that wallet again, in us creating policies that make it more feasible. So it always goes back to finance. If you have housing being built without parking, if it's expensive for parking, people are going to be looking for ways to fund transportation that's non-automobile oriented. The public's going to be looking for that. They're going to push for mechanisms like that. They're going to push for things like dynamic pricing in a way Our new gas taxes that we've been implementing in California over the last several years have been a form of congestion pricing in a way. Things like VMT taxes, things of that sort are all ways in which we can increase funding revenue to build other forms of infrastructure that are not auto-oriented. And I think, again, it's going to come up to the people. I think most folks know the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit and this idea that the nefarious tire companies came into Los Angeles and bought up all of our rail system and turned it into buses in the 1930s through the 1950s and 60s. And sure, there's some truth to that, but really that's not what happened. Really what happened is the people in Los Angeles wanted automobility. They voted with their wallets for automobility, and that's what we ended up with. So if we want to switch that back, it really has to be a regional thing to happen within our own populace, within our own psyche as a region. And we as professionals working in the field, either academically or for governmental agencies, need to be developing policies to sort of nudge the folks in that direction. But ultimately in Los Angeles, it's going to be the people in Los Angeles that choose their further direction. I think no matter what, we're headed there. Our population right now is 10 million, continues to grow. The city of Los Angeles continues to add new residents. As we continue to densify and as our terrible policies of building housing, all this new parking underneath it, 
as we continue to do that, as congestion continues to grow, eventually it will hit that tipping point where people demand other modes of transportation. Wow. Yeah, it's not so much a tipping point, but we have an expression for this in Dutch where the sea is stopping and when it hits the shore, then something will change. And I think this is happening in cities. Cities are attractive to live, to reside, but then you're dependent on that it's a pleasant place and people will demand it. Of course, they will demand to go wherever with their car, but they also demand an attractive place. That's where they go on holidays. That's the places they like to visit in their spare time, as long as they can choose or they really want that. So true. Roland, any last advice for LA? I'm writing this all down. We have parking, we have housing, we have banking system, we have it making more expensive to drive. And of course, for me, it's safety, 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 speed of cars, but, or is it just all of the above? Well, in the second part, we talked a lot about cars. And I think the best bike plan is always a good or sensible car plan, which is reducing speeds, creating a sensible road hierarchy where you get rid of all the redundant roads that are too wide and make a sparse network of main roads. But I also think on bike train logic itself and what we have experienced in the Netherlands and in other countries where they see a rise is that once this system starts kicking, you can expect a very high increase in volumes in a very short time. So you need to plan it very different than a car system. A car system. Again, its weakness is its limited scalability, but bike train is the opposite. It's a very scalable system and you should plan for this. And what I mean with that is once a highway is full, you can't expand it. You have to build another highway and one lane will add maybe 20, 30% capacity. But with bike train and with transit, uh, you see very higher leverage ratios. So you might have 10 users now, and this can quickly grow to 200 and then it grows to 1000 and then it can grow to 5000. So you have this leverage ratio where in a couple of years it can grow by a factor 30 or 40. And that means very different systems. This is its strength because it focuses transport flows on more limited access. That is exactly what the bike is doing in combining traffic flows on a limited number of transit corridors. And you need very different solutions for us. And that is why I always warn to be cautious about bike in train, because bike in train might be a good solution where there is still carrying capacity on your trains, but also on the platform and in the escalators, et cetera, et cetera, and in boarding times. But once this grows by a factor of five, is it still tenable? And if it grows by a factor of 50, it will definitely not be tenable anymore. And then while well, for the current time, you might still think in bike and train solutions to start it kicking, but at the same time, you need to think of other solutions. In the Netherlands, we can't bring our bike on trains, except for two or three bikes per train, where half of the train is using their bike to reach the station. And that's exactly for this reason, because not just the rolling stock is a problem, but also the waiting time at the platform. It will be filled with every second person. The people just don't fit on the platforms anymore, of course, it's because it's hundreds of people waiting there. The boarding times, the escalators, the station square, it can't handle all these bicycles. And if it can't handle this higher load, then you will never reach more than 1% of modal share. And that's just worth the investment and the trouble. So while it might be a good thing for now, start thinking of solutions and start experimenting with this, which is mostly bike parking and bike share systems, where you start to have pilot projects in these to set standards for what kind of solutions work for your region, built on institutions, manufacturers, for these kind of solutions that in the end you will need if you do the next jump at a later time. So think about the scalability. 
Let me ask you this, because that is so inspiring. Where would we go to, to build the plan to start that scalability where it becomes exponential growth? Is there people who study that? Have you guys modeled it? How do we lay that out for our politicians? Well, the whole idea of connecting cycling with transit is that it's a very strong combination. Once you get sufficient load of your transit system, you can get profitable trains uh, running with high comfort, good transit subscriptions, six times per hour, 10 times per hour, whatever, excellent stations, excellent apps, excellent ticketing systems. So once it starts kicking, then it's a very good service. Once there are cycling streets, when you don't have to fear for your life when cycling mm -hmm. to a place, it's a very convenient mode. So you get exercise, you see people, you experience your city, you can do things on the way, you park your bike, you do some groceries and you continue on your way to the station or the other way around and then it works excellent the problem is getting the problems away of safe cycling infrastructure of a decent station facilities of decent transit services but once they are all in place then it's a much better system than the car system at least that's how it's functioning in the Netherlands so it starts reinforcing that it starts gaining momentum I think it's an important characteristic that you always need to plan for the next 10 years for the parts that start to get good service will be the subsystems that grow the fastest. Have you guys modeled how to get to this level or does anyone do that? In LA, there's 88 cities. So that's something that we have to consider. And creating that one way of thinking for all 88 cities is hard. There's some cities that are going to be different. There's some cities that are probably going to continue to be suburban for the foreseeable future. One really important thing that Roland hit on is really that first last mile connection and what that means at the last mile and what it means at the first mile. First mile, like Roland said, is really having that secure, safe bicycle parking. You're not going to take your bike to the station and leave it at the station if you're worried that it's going to get stolen. You need that secure, safe bicycle parking. And on the other end, that last mile, you need that bike share. You need to be able to pick up a bike at a rail station when you get off the train and get to your final destination. Amsterdam has been really good at doing that because they have such a glut of bicycles. I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm sure Roland can tell you it's probably something like three or four bikes per resident compared to here in Los Angeles. We're at around one, which isn't bad. We have bikes here. We need to create secure bicycle parking. As for creating that shift politically, I think that's the question of the day. I don't think that we have the answers to those things, what that looks like in the future. What I can see as a silver lining on the clouds is that at a certain point, the density of Los Angeles, again, will hit that tipping point where there's no other choice to continue to add automobile infrastructure here. Our roads are finite. We are a city that dates back to the 1700s. A lot of our roadway infrastructure was laid out in the 1800s, especially in the urban core of Los Angeles. So really, we don't have any room to expand automobile infrastructure. At a certain point, then you're going to see electeds get on board with coming up with solutions. But that might be 10, 15 years from now. I think like Roland said, getting ready for that is probably what we should be focusing on. Really getting ready for that tipping point of when bikes are going to come here and continuing to not build piecemeal infrastructure. Some of the things that we do in my capacity, managing open streets, for example, we try to make sure that cities work together on open street events. So when we have an open street event like Ciclovia or others, that goes to multiple jurisdictions, that's a really good opportunity for cities to work together to create infrastructure. Now, obviously, the city of Los Angeles is the largest in the region, makes up about 40% of our population and maybe 20 to 30% of our land area. It's a big city, but there's 88 other cities in this county that need to be focused on. And then lastly, again, getting the electeds on board is really about us. The electeds do what we tell them to do. So your elected officials are really doing what you want them to do. And if you want bicycle infrastructure, you really got to vote with your feet, vote with your pedals. 
<laughs> I love it. Thank you guys so much for coming on Bike Talk. Absolute pleasure. Very fun. And wonderful chatting with you, Roland. Likewise. And thanks, Lindsay, so much for the interview. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.